I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know your endurance, your, uh, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, uh, but yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this morning, we kind of uncovered some of the things as we traveled through this passage here, specifically to the church in Ephesus. Uh, We looked at a few of the things that uh, can be things that we have to discern as far as what those uh, things are being said, but we definitely knew this is what was being said, and so we want to uh, to be careful that we stick to what we know for sure. It's to the angel in the church at Ephesus. And these are the words. He gives them a condemnation and then uh, walks them through kind of the process that they do with each of the churches in uh, Revelation. So as we look at these areas, we find that there is an address to the congregation, an introduction to Jesus, which uh, always is dry, uh, drawing from chapter 1. In each of those uh, descriptions that you'll see in each of the churches, there's a statement regarding the condition of the church or accommodation, something that they're praised for. Uh, There's a verdict from Jesus regarding the condition of the church, the criticism in all but two. And there's a command from Jesus to the church and then a general exhortation to all Christians. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. We dived into that as well. Uh, There was a promise given, and to each of the churches, there's a different promise uh, that relates to those who have an ear to hear, those who do what uh, they're commanded to do in response to what Jesus has for them. And so if they do this, then there's a specific promise that is given. Uh, I'm going to dive into a little bit of um, the seven churches I'm going to give a little bit of explanation on that, but before we do, related to this morning's kind of sermon and service, um, if there's any questions, we'll try to answer those first, and then we will look at a few of the things related to the seven churches. Matt has a microphone, so just put up your hand if you've got uh, something you want to ask as far as two, one to seven, first of all. Yeah, I was just uh, in the point you made about the uh, relationship. Oh, no, the, the verse on losing your first love. Uh, I've also been reading this last while, which goes along with what you were saying, that losing your first love, if you become so committed to to the work and the works and even the things of God, and if you lose time for a relationship, then you're losing your first love because your first love is not the work itself. It's Christ himself and your relationship with him. So that's, and I've been reading that myself this last while through uh, Oswald Chambers. So mm. good. 
Yeah, thanks, Blair. Reinforces the point that I think is trying to be made, right? Um, who are the... Um, Nicolaitans? The, yeah, who are they? <laughs> I'll give you kind of just a quick summary because we're going to dive into it with Pergamum. So in the next, uh, the third church, we will, because they are associated as well with Balaam, so we'll dive into that. Uh, there are different kind of views. To, to be honest with you, no one knows. That's the bottom line. Uh, we have some speculation. Uh, there was uh, Nicholas who was brought on as far as the apostle. There's a Nicholas that could have been at the time that uh, began to teach some false doctrines. That uh, That's how we got Nicolaitans. Um, it could be related to just kind of the... Um, if it's related to ba- Balaam, it could be related to the... Uh, sexual deviation as far as at that time what was taking place. Some view it as a kind of the laity taking over, in a sense you're lording over in a church, um, just from the word victory over. Uh, Nicolaitan, um, if you break it down, gives that impression that laity could be kind of dictating rather than serving in, a, in the proper way and fashion. But we will dive into that a bit. When we, regardless... He hates it. They hate it. They're good. But we will dive into that in Pergamum a bit. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'd like you to explain um, David Guzak. Yeah, Guzak. Yeah. I'm struggling with uh, what he said there. I can't understand. Right at the end? Uh, Is it where it's this was meant first? The curse alone baffles me, but... But um, what does the total... The Is it on the last page? Huh? Last page? Are you looking at the last page? Oh, no. Yeah. Right at the back, you mean? I'm just looking to see where you're looking at on my notes. This was meant? Is that what the phrase says? Is it on the last page of his notes? Yeah. Yes. So this was meant first in the internal sense of making it to heaven, which was no small promise to the church that's threatened by the removal of Jesus' presence. It is also meant in the sense of seeing the effects of the curse rolled back, right, in our own lives through walking in Jesus' redeeming love. So what he's saying there is the promise, right, of what is being promised for them that overcome or those that... uh, the word here in my Bible is conquer, is first meant the fact that we're going to make it, we're, we're going to be in eternal heaven forever with the Lord. But secondly, it shows us that the curse, we have a result of the curse, right? And it's being rolled back. So we're, it's in a sense, redeeming it. You know what I mean by that? So it's making it right. So the curse, the effect of the curse was sin and death. Uh, Christ promises to the victor that those things are now made right in Jesus Christ. So we're made right in the way that it's ruled back. It just means that we're made right in what God has set up for us. That's what he's just saying here. You, you'll, it'll return to what it should have been in the first place, but the effects of sin entered the world. Curses the sin... Right. And so now it's rolled back to the fact that, oh, in a sense, if you think of it, roll it back in time to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, 
that's now what we'll enjoy in the future because Christ will restore and redeem what was lost. Do I think it's going to be exactly like it was in the garden? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, Revelation 22 gives us some uh, other ideas of the fact that uh, the, you know, the temple will be there, the, king, the Jerusalem, God's presence. It's going to be similar but different than the garden. It's going to be paradise. Right? But I don't think that I don't think it's gar- the Garden of Eden returned at the end. I think it's a symbolic representation of the, what. That's my own personal view, but sorry, we got the mic. First Church of Ephesus. Okay, so all right, so we, we're okay. You have to start right from the beginning. He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Okay, so that's the uh, the angel. Regarding that church, and I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and has borne, and has patience, and has not for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. So it doesn't mean the whole church, right? He's talking to the ones who are, um, who have an ear to hear, Right? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So they're commanded to come back to their first love, Jesus, right? Yes. Okay, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent. So come back to your first love. Remember what you've been saved from, right? And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove the candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, which we don't know really what they are right yet. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, so for all these churches, Todd, it's the ones that hear what Christ's angel is saying to them, right? It's not like the whole church. So I would distinguish. So the first section, I would say, is to the church. Church of Ephesus. Right. Right. And yet, each of the churches are to hear the same message. Right. It impacts, and we'll go through this in a minute, that it impacts all the churches, churches, they're plural. Right, right. Uh, to them that overcome, right. Hear, right, those who have an ear to hear are the overcomers. The body of Christ. So the second portion, the last portion there, I believe is to those who listen, repent, Turn, uh, return back to their first right. love. But I believe the first part is addressing the church at Ephesus, which means the local body of believers there, and it encompasses, as a general rule, I'm sure not every single person. However, I think in general that church itself, that's something that they are known for as a local body of believers. Right. right. It's for everybody, if they hear. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, yes. But he's describing what they are like. Right. He's giving, this is what you are like. Yeah. Here's where I have a problem yeah. that you need to address. Now, here's what you need to do to repent. Repent as a local body. Repent as individuals. Right. Both. Okay. Yes. Sorry to bother you here. It's okay. We want to help you understand. Go to... <clears throat> One, three. Hold the mic higher. Hmm, there you go. 
uh, 1-3 that um, goes to the last letter or last page. Um, it is Christ's desire that those who hear the words of this prophecy. Okay, now let's go back to that word prophecy. What is the prophecy there? So, um, the angels relaying from Jesus the message that he wants communicated through John, and it's of this prophecy. So prophecy, we know, is things to come. So he's going to outline for us, the reader, things that are to be happening. To come, okay. God's plan, as it's going to unfold, he's going to relay that information. So he'll mention it there, he mentions it twice, right? For this prophecy. It says that that you could be shut out uh, from actually reading or the words you won't understand them um, right so I do struggle sometimes with different parts in the Bible it doesn't mean me right off the bat does it <laughs> <laughs> so James chapter 1 right James will outline for us that if anyone lacks wisdom act, lacks understanding what are we to do we ask God right so when I I'm going to, just as much as you, face the challenges of understanding. When I do that, I'm supposed to ask God, God, I'm struggling with this. I, I don't quite understand it. Will you help me understand this? I think it's the heart of, as opposed to the, 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 you know, the intake knowledge of. You want to understand it. Um, and I think you will as you spend time studying it, reading through it. Saying, God, I want to really grasp this. So, yeah, it's generally to us, right? In a sense, we want to listen. We want to understand. Um, sometimes that's just one thing that God's pointing out in our lives, right? Where we say, "Okay, God's pointing this out in my life. I want to respond." That's what He's looking for. I believe. Don't feel like any questions to, you know, you can ask whatever you want in regards to that. I do want to kind of dive in the seven churches just to kind of give us an, an understanding. We obviously see that the number seven, we traveled through that a little bit as far as what that looked like. I'm just using the expository, uh, expository sermons by W.A. Criswell. Because I think he lays this out well. There's a few things to understand. It was brought up, I think, in one of our earlier sessions regarding the seven churches, what they represent, who are they. And so just to kind of help us kind of get an idea of this, um, why Christ addresses the seven churches here, simply because these seven churches have in them those spiritual characteristics that Christ finds in his churches throughout the centuries. Right? So he's going to address seven churches. These are literal churches. They would literally have these challenges and recommendations or accommodations. Uh, so they are literal congregations that he uses. We know that there were more than just seven at the time. Right? So he could have chosen others, but he chose these. Uh, they also represent challenges that all churches have, 
and all individuals in the church have. And so the application will go to the church of Ephesus, but then it's interesting each time it says to the churches who hear, right? So each of the churches has to take stock of the other church's uh, letter to them, right? And say, okay, are we, are we doing what we need to do? And then throughout history... Each churches, the churches in history, also have to dive in and look at these, right? And say, okay, we're looking at this and seeing Forest Baptist Church as a community. How are we doing on what Jesus is asking us in here? Then it is, Todd, how am I doing with what the challenge is here in my own personal life? Okay, that's the application purpose. Uh, so here's some of the reasons why the first one... One why he wrote was because it's simply representative of the spiritual characteristics of churches in general. Second reason why we know that these seven churches represent all the churches of Christ uh, is because uh, of the urgency and the immediacy with which these letters are composed and addressed. So there's an urgency to these that represent each of the churches that are spoken of. Because there's a conclusion, the ending of the letters. They are ending with the most impressive sentence that mind could imagine. If you have an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which is plural, which we talked about. And I would suppose that there is something significant over and beyond what is on the written page, that there are deep meanings in in these messages because they are referred to as the mysteries, like a secret meaning that a man could not know. We need God's intervention to understand what's taking place here, that Christ is going to reveal these things to us. And as we read them, really what we are relying upon is the Spirit to say, okay, here's what needs to take place, right? So I believe that as a community, God would impress upon us, through the Holy Spirit, what that area of need is. And as we travel through seven churches, I think we'll get a good picture. We'll say, hmm, I think as a body of believers, we might be, you know, doing these things well that we see, and we might be missing the mark here. But then as individuals, we do the same evaluation process. Okay, I see where these things I'm striving to do, but I see with these things where I'm not matching up and I want to make sure I am a part of the one who hears and I'm relying on the Spirit to open those things up to me, to show me, right? Fifth, I know that there is significance in these addressed addresses to those seven churches beyond those local historical congregations because the messages are found in a book of prophecy, So a book of prophecy means, relates to future events. His argument here is, because it relates to the future events, it also relates to we are from here in the future. So it relates to us as much as it did to them at the time, is his argument here. Twice in the book of uh, Revelation, there's reference to this prophecy being outlined. So uh, he lays that out. There is some who believe that these churches, there are some who believe that the churches represent churches. Yes, represent churches in general, is what he's saying. But there are others who believe it also represents 
church history from the time of Christ right through. So you'll see some have kind of segmented it to say, and I'll show you here what they recommend, what they've suggested. The first letter is written to a group that refers to this time period. You'll see the next time period, that sort of thing. I'm not a huge dweller on on that aspect, although it's an interesting concept, I guess, to think about, that each of these uh, represents a period. You would say that the Ephesian period, a period of witness of the cooling of the love and devotions, right, as such as the church in uh, Ephesus, they would say it's kind of the conclusion of the apostolic days. So they would say that as the apostolic days concluded, uh, like you see in the first love, it some starts to cool off. So the next period of time, as represented here, would be one of cooling off. As you go through the other churches, eh, I'm not sure. Uh, I hold strongly to the viewpoint, but you can see as we grow older in our walk with the Lord, there are times it's possible that we cool off. So they're suggesting that the the time period right after the apostles is the cooling off time. They would suggest that the Smyrnian period in history is that time. There's no words of of, uh, condemnation. It's not challenging them on any aspect. So they suggest that uh, it's, you know, one of the only letters that is written with all praise and encouragement, that it's the time of martyrdom in the church. And we see that that came about just before the days of uh, Constantine. Uh, so we see that there's a lot of martyrdom that was happening at that time. So some suggest that this period represents that period of time. Uh, there is a, a Pergamon period of church history suggested. Uh, you are now seated where Satan's throne is. This is in Pergamum. The church is marred by the world. Constantine performed the ceremony they suggest that entered this time period because he legalized Christianity throughout the known world that time. And so their um, comparison is of Pergamum to the time of Constantine and that the church itself then was kind of more connected to the world. There's a Thyatiran period, which is uh, the development of Christianity. When Jezebel ruled the church, it says, as described in the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. And here they would connect this time period. So in the 24th verse of the second chapter, he speaks of God's faithful servants who are put to death. So they would say this is the time you know, where Christians were being put to death in the millions uh, for uh, standing up for their faith. The Sardine period, Church of the Reformation, uh, is a time period in which they say that this was a time where you know the Reformation was uh, in effect, and the church at Sardis, who had not been defiled, they had not defiled their garments. There's great names of those who uh, gave up their life during this period of time or took a great stand. The Philadelphian period of church history is an era of the open door. And so mo- many would say, oh, okay, that's kind of just... The open door representing the fact of foreign missions. And so the time period with William Carey, Adonai Judson, Luther Rice, the preaching of the gospel. And then the seventh one is the Laodicea period, which is where the church itself thinks it's rich when they're poor. And the Lord says, you know, um, you don't know you are wretched 
and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And he, they would represent this as a time uh, where we have wealth and we really struggle because we don't have that same need for the Lord that we did. And so we can become very lukewarm in that time period, which he would say represents today. Now others see the Laodicean period of time is the period of time in the end time in the, during the tribulation. However, uh, I don't... Uh, I struggle with each of those type time periods because I don't know that that's exactly the message that Jesus is trying to communicate to the churches. So I take it that it's representative of a church, representative of churches, and it represents us in our relationship with the Lord. I was reading that... Um the order that the letters are written is um, from a geographical standpoint, so that, that this would be the route a traveler would take. It made sense that that's yeah. why they were written in yeah, this Yeah, they call order. that the postal. Yeah. Being a mailman, I know. I was going to say. It's called the postal fitting. travel because right. that's where they would travel and deliver So rather than time periods, it's geographically the route the traveler would right. go. I would think that the time period people wouldn't deny that. Okay. They're just additionally adding okay. to this. So they're not throwing out the rest of this. Gotcha. They're just speculating mm-hmm. on, oh, this looks like it also represents time periods in church history as you look back. Yes. When I read the Bible, <laughs> I always take it personally. Like, I always feel like God's talking to me. And I remember reading this many times after I'd been a Christian for a while. And um, I thought, wow, it's like when you're first born again, you're so in love with Jesus and excited and you want to share him with everybody. And somehow over the years that can grow cool and when I would read that I would think wow I feel like that's me you know that um, I still love the Lord but not like I did at the first and then I thought of of marriage it's kind of like that at the first everything's all wonderful and exciting and everything and then um, as you get to know each other better and things happen it you still love them but it, it changes over time. But I, I just felt like um, I was failing God, that I wasn't loving him like I did at the first. But then I realized that if you don't stay in the word of God, and that confirms all the time that God still loves me, it's just the same for him at, as it was at the first. He never changes it's me that changes and how I need to, to keep in the word and just believe what the word says and keep loving him and in the best way that I know how. But it still isn't quite like it was at the first. So I don't know if other people have felt that way too, but that's, you know, so it's, it's always a good thing to remind ourselves, don't lose that passion for God. And the only way that you can't lose it, is by reading the word and realizing his love never changes for me. Mm-hmm. So, 
the seven churches, is that end times or is that just a Bible talk? So my, my perspective on this is that these are literal seven churches he's writing to right at the time he's writing. Okay? You're to write these things to the seven churches. This is a church in Ephesus, a church in Smyrna, a church in Pergamum, right? As you travel that route, it goes this way, I think. So as you travel the route, those are seven churches yeah. that he wrote to. Just like Paul wrote to the Corinth church. Okay, so it's just to, to travel back in those days. It's not end, end times. Uh, so where I believe it's prophetic as well is it relates to churches today just as much as it related to churches yeah. then. Right? So, so I believe that God uh, brought up all these um, wrong way of dealing with, uh, with things in in the churches, and also the congregation has a lot of problems too. So I believe he'd like to see uh, more people straighten up what's going on in the churches, in their own lives, which will rub off in other people, and more people will come to them. Amen. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Now where I would kind of differ with some is, I believe that verse 19 of chapter 1 Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Okay, that's a vision of Jesus in my perspective. The, those that are, well, we're going to get the seven churches. They are currently, uh, as well as it relates to the application for us today and the things that will take place after this. My perspective on reading through Revelation is that that starts at verse chapter 4 when he specifically says, after this. So I take the literal translation of, you know, write these things that will take place after this as being chapter 4 verse 1. So after this, now when he's writing, the prophetic thing that will take place is chapter 4 on as far as the view that I have. I've given you some paperwork that will help you kind of, well, maybe not help you, but it'll definitely uh, be something you can try to digest and work through. Uh, those are the perspectives as it relates to, and primarily um, primi- primarily the millennial view of the kingdom of God. So that really is your hinge point on most of the different views, or at least it becomes the, the catalyst of what boils up in it. So depending on, again, remember we looked at, you have different ways of approaching Revelation from different view uh, lenses. You're looking at it through a certain lens. And those lenses dictate how you, interp- you, how you will travel through the book uh, of Revelation. I've given you just kind of the... I thought it was easier just to give you the paperwork and help you kind of walk through that. An all-millennial view of this would be a... Uh, this is uh, allegory. It's, it's symbolism. Uh, specifically related to the millennial kingdom. So they take the thousand-year reign as not a literal thousand years. Uh, their uh, main defense on that is as a day is like a thousand years. And so this is what's represented here. And so you'll see how that view going into taking Revelation um, looks as far as the timeline of what Revelation would be. So basically, it's from the time of Christ 
and then where these things fit into that as it relates to Satan, the millennium, Christ's return, uh, a rapture. Well, they, there is no rapture in the all-millennial view, uh, so that's a mute point for them on that. Uh, this is a real basic kind of understanding. You'll have your post-millennial, right? So they believe that Christ's return, again, there's no millennial, uh, there's no rapture view, but a, a return is after millennial, which could be, depending on your viewpoint of the post-millennial, could be literal or non-literal. So they could jump over to a like a millennial view, or they can jump into the all-millennial view, but I don't know, there's not a whole lot of difference to me between an all-millennial and a post-millennial view because Christ's returning at the end of the ages. Uh, however, if you look at each of these, Christ does return at the end, which is interesting. So there's your post-millennial, your historic pre-millennial view. Uh, they just use that term. Um, some of the references of some of the people here, uh, I would question as sort of the references, but in general, these are kind of people because this is taken from an all-millennial view book, so they have put in who they felt they wanted as far as their references for different people here. So you've got your historical premillennial view, and then you have a dispensational premillennial view. The difference with dispensational premillennial, dispensation believes that God was working in uh, some dispensational time periods in certain ways. Right from and it highlights it there at the up up front as far as your your creation, fall, flood, that sort of time periods of what was happening through that time. Uh, a dispensational premillennial view would look at the church age as a time period. Uh, it looks at the signs of the times as um, you know happening before the rapture which is, you know, Matthew and et cetera. And then you have a, set, a literal seven years of tribulation time, Christ's return, a millennial earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years, and then a final return, uh, a final judgment and a, and a new heavens, new earth time period that will take place. I think we looked a bit at that. That's kind of your, your travel point. So if you were to take the literal reading of and then try to put it in a time frame, timeline, that's the timeline that uh, would make most sense as a literal reading. Do each view have their valid points of challenge? Yes. So I'm not denying, I wouldn't tell you I'm going to die on a hill of what my personal stance is on this. However, how you read through text you know, how you want to view it is determined by your perspective here. Because here's what you're going to have. These are your challenge points, depending on your perspective. Daniel chapter 2, 7, 9, and 11. So this is Dan, the visions that God gives to Daniel uh, that are prophecy that are going to take place. And as you read through those, you will have to wrestle through what that looks like as far as the time frame, specifically when it comes to what's called the 70th week of Daniel. Um, and again, your, how I'm going to look at this passage dictates where I will land on my viewpoint uh, of it. Um, so I'll just leave those up. Romans 9 and 11. So you want to look at your national Israel and the viewpoint 
of how I carry into this from whatever perspective here will determine the outcome of what I believe that is saying. So, sorry, I don't know if that's me. Because um, uh, Romans 9 and 11 talk about national Israel, right, and God's future plan for it, or uh, it's just a, you know, a general view of things, and it's not national Israel we're talking about. The grafting in is different uh, depending on your viewpoint. So, uh, again, those are your challenge points. First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, amongst other verses, that's the one, um, somebody who doesn't believe in the rapture, like there, there's a terminology for rapture. They don't say that it's there, so there is no rapture. Uh, they would say that the rapture people will only hinge on this. I, I have other uh, passages, I believe, that refer to the similar the word rapture is not there, right? It's caught up, it's taken away type of scenario, um, but I think there's a good defense for it. Um, however, they would challenge that defense on different views, and that's a post-millennial and all-millennial uh, would challenge your the rapture view. Um, again, I don't find the Trinity in, in Scripture either, but I don't throw it away. And Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is the man of lawlessness, so again, we'll have to put together from our lens, which way we're looking at this, what that means. So I'm going to try to boil it down fairly simple. So you either have to represent some of these things as symbol- symbolic, representing something other than what they are, uh, or if you take it literally, then you're going to wrestle through how those literally come to be. Does that make sense? So if I'm literally reading this as a... a a literal uh, interpretation, I'm going to wrestle that through because there are going to be some challenges with wrestling some of this through that way as well as the other way. Those are the two main approaches to that. Romans, uh, sorry, that's supposed to say uh, Revelation. Revelation 4 to 19. And that's going to be God's judgment and wrath. Those will come out in your timeline depending, again, on how you view things to whether they are going to be literally, prophetically, you know, happening in the future, or whether they are generically happening now throughout the church age in a, in a symbolic representation uh, way. So that's going to give you nightmares to try to piece all that together. What do you think? Stand ready. Are you able to hear? So that if you really start to think about staying ready, to stay ready. Are you ready to meet the Lord today? That's what it's asking. Amen. Amen. Are we still in the battle? Are we still struggling? Yes. Are there areas of our lives we continue to have to surrender? Yes. But are you ready? That's the difference, and uh, that's, I think, what the call is. Staying ready is so, so helpful. It's key because we know that God has a purpose for us for every hour here, and we're ready to go, but until he takes us, whether by death or rapture, he has things for us to do. And so that settles your heart. It gives you motivation as well as anticipation. 
How's the Lord going to use me today? We don't know. But if we're ready to go, we know he'll plug us in. And if he reveals there's something we're not clean in, man, and take care of it right away and get back on the road. Uh, is that the right way of saying it? <laughs> Being ready. <laughs> All right. I will leave you those papers. You can start to process. I would encourage, so those that you know, just want to take this very uh, generally and this is good and uh, talk through some things and this is as much as I can absorb, not a problem. That's great. That's what we, we do, right? We process what we can and we live out what we know and what we've been told. Those that want to dig a little deeper, by all means, and I do encourage you, uh, for those that do want to dig deeper, to make, you know, go ahead and I think it's important to read the different perspectives. Right? I would never say don't because I think that that helps kind of uh, funnel your... It may become overwhelming at times for some things. I'll try to help you through some of that if you uh, would like. Um, but it also, you know, challenges. So in preparation for this uh, series, I have read through, again, some of the different positions that people have taken on uh, looking at Revelation, uh, which helps me, again, refine what I kind of come out. Do I still have questions about things? Sure. Yeah. I don't think I have all the answers. I don't think it is intended to give us all the answers to all of those things, although it helps channel us into some of that perspective. Um, But even as I've been reading, it's helped me kind of re refocus, not necessarily change, but it's helped me to refocus where, uh, you know, I just my own position is and where I, I stand on some of these things. So, Good Lord, just thank you for uh, tonight. I know it's a lot of information to try to settle in our minds. I thank you that you wrote these uh, letters to these seven churches. Lord, some of them were doing really well at certain areas and, other, and some were uh, having to re- uh, repent and turn and change their ways in areas. Uh, some that were very significant areas of that church life, and especially with uh, Ephesus. To think that they had all of this action going on and all these things that were really good and they were, they were uh, diligent. They were uh, really deliberate in their uh, attempts to make sure that they were holding the truth but they had really lost that compassion and that love and that relationship with you that gave the power and the meaning and significance to what they were doing. And really, it, that's where our source is found, is in our relationship with you. And uh, so I just pray that you would just challenge us in that. You know, are we spending that time with you individually? Are we spending that time centered around you as a church family? Uh, understanding that you are, um, it, you know, you are the focus, and it's your love for us, and we love you because you first loved us. That's what uh, we're told. That love, first of all, f- comes from you to us, and and then we respond back in love, and we want to know that, and we want to love you with all of our being, everything that we have, and we want to love one another. We want to have compassion for the lost in our community, and we want to have a real burden, and it's something that flows out of that love that we uh, have in that relationship with you. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would just reignite that, um, and it burn again brightly within us and in our hearts and in our lives. 
and uh, so that it overflows into others. Lord, we pray that you wouldn't remove our light here. You wouldn't remove us as a candle in our community, but that we would be that light that draws uh, people to you. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.